Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where my guest tells me the five things from their life that they would put in a time capsule. They can choose anything from any time in their life. Four of them have to be things that they treasure, but one of them must be something they rather regret and would like to banish from their past by burying it in the ground, out of sight, out of mind. My guest in this episode is the writer, producer and actor Charlie Hickson, famous as one of the creators and stars of The Fast Show. Charlie started writing with his friend Paul Whitehouse for Harry Enfield and first performed on The Craig Ferguson Show and Vic Reeves' Big Night Out, as well as The Smell of Reeves and Mortimer, The Fast Show spin-offs Ted and Ralph and Swiss Tony, before writing, producing and directing and sometimes guest-starring in Randall and Hopkirk, again with Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. He's written many books, seven The Enemy novels and seven Young Bond novels, set during James Bond's school days. He continues to perform and has recently been in Jekyll and Hyde, Grantchester and Broadchurch with David Tennant and Olivia Coleman. So let's find out what Charlie Hickson would put into his time capsule. You join our conversation as we discuss our comedy connections and especially our long and joyous involvement with the much-missed producer, Jeffrey Perkins. Excuse our indulgence, but he couldn't be left out. It's a long journey we've both had. I seem to remember that I first met you at Jeffrey Perkins' house a long time ago at some sort of summer barbecue. Yes, I mean, we have we had lots and lots of mutual acquaintances and connections, mm-hmm. not least through through Philip Pope. Yeah. Who obviously used to do all our music back in the day. And Jeffrey Perkins was a connection to so many people. I mean, Jeffrey mm. was such an amazing guy and the, the greatest comedy producer there's ever been, I think the number of people he worked with and encouraged and helped develop, and he was incredibly um, generous. And he pretty much taught me 
how to make television because um, he was one of the producers on Friday Night Live, which became Saturday Night Live, the UK version. Mm. And then he worked developing Harry's show. So uh, we worked on that. We worked with Jeffrey first. He encouraged me and Paul to write for Harry's Stavros character on that. And then we developed loads of money. And then when we were doing Harry's show, Jeffrey was there. And he, you know, the old school version of TV was... uh, Keep the writers away, you know. The directors would hold up a crucifix in the hope that the dreaded writers wouldn't get anywhere near the set and start saying, no, you're doing it all wrong. No, no, that's not how the joke works, which I'm afraid I did. But Jeffrey was always incredibly encouraging and he encouraged me and he let me sit alongside him, really, as he was producing. And I would sit next to him in the in the booth when we were recording and we would work alongside and and he taught me everything I knew and it was it was a such a loss to to comedy when he he died prematurely um but you know the number of people that that he worked with and it was that that thing that he had of encouraging people Mm. and developing people and he would you know he would often work with someone for for years before they they were ready to do tv and there aren't that many people around who who do that, who nurture other people. We're all sort of fragmented and fractured and off doing our little things in our own little world. But Jeffrey always wanted to put everybody together and 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 find new people always. So now you find often people aren't quite ready for doing TV and they'll sort of be given too much too soon and it won't work and that will will spoil their career. And they don't have a figure like Jeffrey to kind of work alongside him and say, well, let's try this, let's try that. He wasn't always right. I mean, I remember when uh, Caroline Ahern was developing the royal family and obviously Jeffrey, from working with us on the Fast Show, knew Caroline through that and all the other things she was doing. And... When she was developing that, he kept saying, well, you should do it as a, this is really funny, do it as a proper sitcom with an audience. And she kept saying, no, no, it's not like that. We're trying to do something new. And, you know, and and in that case, she was right. Uh, But Jeffrey conceded. He said, you know, I couldn't see it the way you see it. And now that it's there, obviously that was the way to do it. So it was... um, But that was his great strength, I think, the fact that he knew when he'd made a mistake. Totally. Because he had that generosity Mm. and he was really good at giving notes on things where he would always be incredibly positive and encouraging so that when he then said, but this character's shit and you need to cut it, (laughs) you would go, oh, okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think I did help your career like Jeffrey did because I was the person who introduced you to James Moore at Granada Television. Well, that, you know, that again, everything you do, I, I never had a a plan. I never even intended to go into making television. You know, I grew up, I was a teenager in the 70s. So we didn't do media studies at school. There was no thought of studying it at university. I mean, I did actually study film as part of my university course. But the idea that I would make television wouldn't never occur to me. That was something that other people did. I knew nobody in that world. And it was a much smaller world then before it exploded in the 80s with the growth of the uh, the new Channel 4 and all the independent production companies. But back then I thought, no, I'm not going to. Of course I wouldn't go into television. I don't know how to. No. I'd always liked writing. So that was, that was kind of what I did. And yes, yeah, so the James Moore thing was, yes, it was on the back of doing Saturday Night Live. Mm. And Harry's characters, particularly Loads of Money, got so big so quickly 
that Paul Whitehouse and myself were sort of overnight treated as established comedy writers, which we weren't. We were a couple of mates who'd been decorating together. Uh, Harry was a friend and we, we worked with him and it was fun and it suddenly was on live TV every week. Um, so people were saying, come here, do that, come and do this. And we sort of thought at the time, Paul and I, well, we don't really want to just be Harry Enfield's writers. It'd be nice to do some other things. Mm. So we'd, uh, we'd got to know Craig Ferguson because we did a tour on the back of Saturday Night Live. Harry did loads of money and Stavros and a couple of other of his characters. And the stand-up on that was the great Scottish comedian Craig Ferguson, who started his career as, as Bing Hitler. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and funnily enough, uh, Craig then went on to host the show for years in America that James Corden now hosts. James mm. Corden took over from him. And, of course, nobody over here heard a dicky bird about what Craig had been doing all those years. No. And he must be spitting that, that James Corden came in and somehow got all that attention on the show. <laughs> but anyway, so we did this tour. Craig was the, st- was the support and he was great. He was very ambitious. People liked him. He had that sort of American confidence about him. Mm. And on the back of seeing him do that, Granada TV said, um, why don't you come up and make a, a, a series in Granada? So- I arranged a meeting between you and Paul and James Moore and David Liddermont at yes. Granada Television. And my suggestion, I seem to remember, over quite a number of if I'm right, flaming Zambukas. Yes, because mm-hmm. I, do, I, I seem to remember James actually set fire to his hand yes. whilst drinking one, which That's gives right. you an insight into the sort of character that, that James was. <laughs> <laughs> he enjoyed his flaming Zambukas perhaps a little bit too much at the time. But I kept saying at the time, while we were doing it, you should perform. You should perform your own stuff. You're brilliant at it. <laughs> and you kept saying, yeah, yeah, shut up, you know. And so I had a little bit of foresight. I no, you were you were absolutely right. Um, so were you an executive at Granada? Were you a sort of? They wanted me to be a producer, but I didn't want to be a producer because that would have meant I felt ending up uh, not acting. Yes, and of course, rather stupidly, it wouldn't have meant it would have meant I could have cast myself in everything. Yes, and been in control, made mm-hmm. sure you had you had the best close-ups. <laughs> but yeah, so I sort of became a talent spotter for them. Right, so, um, you know. Gosh, no, it's funny with the things that, you know... The things you do. Through time, you can't remember those connections and how they all came about. But, yes, yeah, so we, we made that uh, pilot with Craig mm. and Helen Atkinson-Wood. Another connection. Another connection, exactly, mm. who was part of your... I always think of you as being a different generation, many, many years older than us, but you're not that much older than us, are you? Mike? I think but I'm you... almost the same age as you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but you and your guys were kind of doing that before... Me and Harry and Paul came along. I didn't do any plastering, that's the thing. Yeah, that's where you went wrong. That's where I went wrong. <laughs> I didn't I didn't join a band with Dave Cummings. <laughs> <laughs> yes, get it out of your system. Yeah. Um but yes, yeah, so we did a pilot and then we went up to Granada and we were working on a series to do with Craig. And actually it was David Liddermont. He came in one day and he said, You know what, guys, I don't think this is going to work for ITV. And so that was that. And he was absolutely right. ITV did a huge amount of comedy in the 70s. A lot of those really, really massive sitcoms were on ITV. But then they, for some reason, they just sort of stopped making it and left it to the BBC. Partly, I think, because traditionally, as the way TV used to be made, certainly, when we had fewer channels, is that comedy often needs 
two, sometimes even three series to find its feet. Mm -hmm. And ITV can't do that. Because they're a commercial channel, they're entirely reliant on the advertising. If something isn't a hit straight off the bat, it's like, well, we can't do that because we're losing money on it. So the BBC traditionally, before they started worrying about viewing figures, would nurture a thing. I mean, Dad's Army famously was a bit of a flop when it started. Only Fools and Horses. Only Fools and Horses. So Victoria many things. Woods. Yes. The Office. I mean, you can go on and yeah. on. Yeah. Really. Well, I mean, even to a certain extent, the Fast Show, the first series of that, didn't have huge viewing figures. In fact, it never did have massive viewing figures compared to what Harry was getting on BBC One. Yeah, so it's difficult for ITV. And, and David Lidderman, who, who is a very, very sharp guy, he knows what's going to be a hit and what's not, what's successful. He just said, look, this, based on the scripts we were writing, he said, you know, this is, this is funny, I like it, but this is not ITV, it's not going to work. So we sort of went back to Harry, with Paul and I, with our tails between our legs and said, Harry, you know you're making this new comedy series and we said we couldn't work on it because we were doing our own series with Craig Ferguson for ITV. <laughs> uh, things have changed a bit. We've decided we'd like to come and work with you instead. So that's how Harry and Phil's television programme came about. So all those things which... And you, I don't look at them as kind of waste of times or, or dead ends because everything you do is is good experience and, and leads to something else and mm. you make connections and you learn. You learn so much uh, about making things. Yes. Well, so let's, um, let's look at the things you've chosen to go into a time capsule. Yes, well, as we're talking about comedy and the fast show, the first thing I'd like to choose is, is a dressing gown. Right. Um, Keep nice and comfy. Uh, it is, actually. It's a very nice, big, thick dark blue dressing gown and it, and it's very big and bulky it's a bit like the one that boxers wear uh-huh. um but it has embroidered on on one sleeve it has the logo of shooting stars Vic and Bob's shooting stars and on the other sleeve is embroidered the logo of the fast show it was a gift from the great promoter Phil McIntyre mm. who promoted Vic and Bob and the fast show shooting stars and the fast show to do a joint show at the Hammersmith Odeon Apollo Eventim yeah. Apollo, whatever it's called. I think at the time it was the Hammersmith Apollo um, in the early 80s. And this was traditionally, as you know, Mike, when you finish filming something, you, you get sort of gifts of like a, um, a jacket with, um, mm. with the logo of the show on it. Depends or, on the budget. Um, Sometimes it just depends a on the budget or yeah. a mug. Yes. <laughs> when I did Broadchurch, I got a mug and a stick of rock. Lovely. Uh, oh, actually, no, I did get a, a also a fleece with the logo of the Broadchurch Police Department on it. So that's quite, uh, that that's was quite nice. nice. Yeah. But as a gift for doing the Apollo thing, which Phil, I think, did make a shitload of money out of, <laughs> uh, we got dressing gowns. And so that dressing gown reminds me of a very, very happy time of my life. Mm. Um, I got to know both Harry Enfield and Vic Reeves through friends at university. They weren't at university with me, but I had friends of theirs at university and had known them over the years. And I'd worked alongside them both, um, working with Harry, obviously, on his early stuff and also working with Vic and Bob, doing bits of performing with them. And then when they did Smell of Reason Mortimer, I was one of the producers on that. Mm. Uh, And I also was an advisor when they started doing Shooting Stars. And so our careers were sort of went in parallel, like like two sleeves of a dressing gown. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, shooting stars really took off. And the big difference, I think, with the way that Vic and Bob approach things and the way that 
Paul and I approach things is, is Vic and Bob love winging it. They love having ideas and trying to keep it fresh and as spontaneous as they can, planning things but not over-planning it. Paul and I are incredibly meticulous. We work out every every detail. And because Paul and I ended up producing everything we did, we were also all used to being kind of in charge. And and I particularly am very anal about things. <laughs> so So we have a completely different approach to things. So Vic and Bob came to us one day and said, oh, I'd, I'd do a terrible accent, which is a sort of amalgamation of the two of them. Said, oh, Charlie, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd really like to do some, some live stuff with um, shooting stars because they'd had successful tours doing sort of big night out. Mm. They said, well, we'd love to do a live show with shooting stars, but we realise it can't really sustain a whole evening's entertainment and people will see, see through it <laughs> and, and get quite cross. They said, how about we do a joint show we do shooting stars in one half. I'm losing the accent now. Forget the accent. Half of it will be shooting stars and half will be the fast show. And we thought, well, this is fantastic because it means that we only need to put together an hour and they only need to put together an hour. And something like the fast show, it is kind of quick and you don't want to stay around for too long. And we thought, you know, we could put together a really, really strong hour-long show mm. and with our fans and their fans, and there was a big crossover between them. We'll do a joint show. And we did. And Phil McIntyre got involved and said, you know, yes, this will work. Um, guaranteed a very nice amount of money for us all. Hmm. And Vic and Bob said, we'll do the first half. We'll get us out of the way <laughs> because it's going to be a mess. And then we'll, we can go and get drunk. Because they, <laughs> they set up in the car park behind the Apollo, they, they set up this kind of big temporary nightclub area, basically with a big free bar and um, they'd have bands playing and things in there. So after the show, there would always be a big party. But Jim and Bob would always get in there at half time. So by the time we came off, they were fairly merry. Um, <laughs> and, you know, their half of the show was a complete mess because they would have different guests on each night and they were like, what would that make, six, seven, eight, no, ten people on stage all talking at the same time with no, no, no one in control. I mean, it was great fun. They did all the stuff you wanted to see. Mm. And it was ramshackle. It cost them nothing to put on. Uh, but ours, we had hundreds of costume and makeup people and wigs and costumes and quick change areas and huge great sets and, <laughs> and music uh, uh, so, of course, we spent a lot more money on our bit than they did. But it was it was fantastic fun to do that. And we actually sold out 32 nights at, at the Apollo, which wow. for, for many years was the, uh, was the record, I think. People forget what it was like, actually. But I find it hard to remember it. The fact that comedy suddenly became like rock and roll and you could play these huge venues... And fill them out. I mean, up until then, comedy had been done in small clubs. Yes, yeah, and and you know that 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 playing that sort of big arena is quite a quite a tricky thing. I mean, it, it, it's actually something like Jim, what Jim, Vic, and Bob do is easier to translate in that because it always was a show out to an audience. Mm -hmm. uh, and here's some light entertainment. Oh, here's some music. Here's a man with a stick. <laughs> Whatever you know. We quickly realised doing the fast show that you couldn't really do traditional sketches, certainly not at any great length, because it was always sort of looking inwards mm. to what you're doing on stage. And the stuff that always worked best was characters that could directly address the audience. 
So, you know, something like Swiss Tony, where I could sort of give advice to the audience and things mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, we learned a lot from doing from, from doing that. But it, it, as I say, that initial run at the Apollo was was huge fun. Brilliant. And it's people like Phil McIntyre and people yes. like that who saw... Saw the potential job. for it, yeah. And, you know, Phil McIntyre, as you know, started as a hard rock promoter mm-hmm. doing all the heavy metal bands and stuff. And... Um, but yeah, he could see that. And obviously it was the Americans who started doing it first, the likes of Steve Martin. Um, and actually, Vic and Bob, you know, I went to a couple of times when they did their first big night out tour. That was total rock and roll. I mean, they were doing that on more of the college circuit. But, mm. you know, that was screaming drunken fans, yelling catchphrases, trying to get on stage, and Vic and Bob just having a, having a laugh. And yes, I think, well... TV and live comedy has changed so much in our lifetimes, Mike, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's finally become funny. <laughs> All right, we're going to take that dressing gown then, Charlie. We'll put that into the time capsule as your first item as a reminder of those happy days. And we'll move on to item number two. Now, I've got several to choose from here. Mm-hmm. I could go with a mask of Derek Jacobi, <laughs> a 40th birthday present from my wife, or a photo of me and my three brothers. Which do you want to go with next? Oh. Well, let's go with a photo of me and my three brothers, because if, mm-hmm. if people have any vague interest in my early life... I do. Well, there we go. That's just about it. There we That's go. all that matters. I shall enjoy boring you about this one, Mike. <laughs> no, um, when I was about... I think I must have been about seven. Uh, I've got three brothers. We had a photograph taken of the four of us, at our home, we lived down near Crawley, down in Sussex at the time. And it's quite an awkward photograph, as any photograph of children, you know, where you can never get them all to do the right thing. And we're all sitting in slightly weird positions and our arms and legs are all a bit askew because <laughs> we're not quite sure what to do with ourselves. In fact, my youngest brother, Dan, was wearing shorts at the time and still in nappies, which were sort of poking out the bottom of his shorts. <laughs> and he was kind of fiddling with his nappy in the shot. But we had this photograph taken and we all had copies of it. And then over the years, whenever the four of us have got together, which sometimes is fairly regularly and sometimes it's not, we try and recreate the photograph. Oh, brilliant. Sitting in exactly the same positions. Do you put your younger brother in a nappy? Well, (laughs) I think in some versions he's certainly in shorts. I don't (laughs) think we've gone as far as the nappy. Um, So trying to recreate these kind of awkward poses and it's quite it is you know it obviously it is quite poignant because it it shows you all of us aging and Mm -hmm. three of us are now in our 60s and we have this record of our lives of the awful clothes we wore at certain points and the ill-advised haircuts we've had over the years (laughs) and the, the different styles of glasses um me and my eldest brother both wear glasses so he went very kind of buggles in the 80s (laughs) Um, (laughs) did he yeah huge huge great thing yes Um, they're the sort of glasses I always picture Jeffrey Perkins wearing strangely enough (laughs) yes (laughs) and uh, since obviously since the start of lockdown we have not been able to get together to do any of these photos but we have actually funny enough I think like quite a lot of people we've actually been speaking to each other more because every Sunday we get together for a family zoom Oh. With uh, my father, who lives in Somerset, who's in his 90s now, but is still going strong. So we do regularly meet up on there. But, you know, looking at 
photographs, you know, you can't be actually being together. And also, I always find photographs tend to make me cry, photographs of anyone, hmm. because you're always aware that it has captured something that doesn't exist anymore. Particularly if you see sort of black and white photographs from the 1920s or something, a group of kids, and you look at that and you think, all those people are dead. And yet here they are, so full of life and energy and captured, and that weird way that, that it's just light falling onto some photosensitive paper. Mm. And it just creates that image, which sort of, it does sort of trap your soul in a way of a photograph. And that way of, of capturing time and the fact that time has gone, it's, it's, it doesn't exist anymore. None of that exists anymore. I always find photographs incredibly poignant. So looking back at the photographs of your life and your brothers through all these stages, you are aware of how much we've, we've changed and aged and grown. And the fact that at some point in the future, we will just be those, those marks of light on that piece of paper. People will look at them and think, I wonder who that was. As they put them in the shredder. <laughs> <laughs> I was sent a photograph by a second cousin to say, do you recognise anybody in this photograph? And the only person I recognised was my aunt. But she was incredibly young and, and, as you say, really vibrant. I enjoyed looking at the picture because I do remember her as a sort of a 90-year-old woman with, mm. um, with Alzheimer's. Yeah. So it was great to see this young, vibrant, yeah, sexy yes. young woman. You know? Exactly. And to be reminded that all these people out there, you know, particularly this time of where so many old people are dying and people saying, well, it doesn't matter, they were uh, in their 80s. You think, mm. but, they, but they, they were people. They were these, they were young people. They had all these adventures and excitement and things in their lives. Yes. My wife is, a, is a, a graphic designer and a printer and a lot of, she does a lot of orders of service for people for funerals. Mm. So she'll get sent lots of photographs of some elderly person who's just died and that will be them as a child, them as a teenager. Mm. It's often really when they're in that sort of young adulthood, as you were describing your, your aunt, mm -hmm. that, that makes you most philosophical. I mean, the other thing that makes these photographs important to me is that um, my mother died when I was quite young and my father moved away to, um, initially to Hawaii. He then moved from Hawaii to California. And in that move, somehow one of the, as things often do in moves, uh, one of the trunks or packing cases went missing, never showed up. And that was the one that had all our family photographs and all the home movies that oh, they'd yeah. shot as kids, and all that kind of family ephemera. And indeed photographs of your mother. And indeed, yeah. I mean, I have, like, I think, two photographs of my mother. Good Lord. And it's weird, because when I remember the past, what I'm remembering is the home movies that we occasionally mm -hmm. watched. And I can remember the home movies. But we, and now I neither have the past nor the home movies. So it's... Uh, it makes you realise that time passes and nothing lasts and everything changes. And whilst one can be can be wistful about that, you have to accept it. And that mm. is part of how life works and how we we do need to move on. Yeah, I recently discovered that um, all my family cine film has somehow been mislaid. I have two brothers, mm. so between the three of us, I don't know. We assumed the others had it. And now none of us know where it is. It's weird, isn't it, where things mm. get missing or go lost like that? When I suddenly remember that an object, well, in fact, I was doing this, I was thinking, well, I'll try and find that. And then you think, I haven't seen that for years. Where's mm. it gone? Did I lend it to someone? Has someone else taken it? 
Because things don't just disappear. They can't get no. us. But so the, They're yeah. inanimate, so yes. they shouldn't really move. But, yeah, the, but I was going to say something about Alzheimer's and things disappearing, but let's, let's, cheer, let's go down a more cheery route. Yes, let's not. Happy memories. I think it's a lovely mm. thing to have those photographs. So each time you take the photographs, you make four copies and each brother gets them. Yes, and of course, it's, well, it's all shared digitally now. And a few years ago, my younger brother, who's quite tech-minded, he used a morphing thing to morph all the different photographs oh, wow. together. So you can see us all slowly growing more decrepit. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> I'd like to watch it in reverse, please, <laughs> yes. if that's possible. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, then I shall definitely put... Well, let's put the first one, because you'll remember the others. Yes, exactly. That's the one that's most vivid. The one with the nappies. That'll make you laugh. Yeah, and actually, because of that photo, I, I, through that photo, I do remember quite a lot about... The house we were in and where we were living at the time it was taken. Mm. So it is, it is a great thing to have. Lovely. Right, let's move on to, to item number three. OK, we're going to take a short break here, but we'll be back with Charlie in next to no time. See you shortly. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Sorry to call you shortly, a bit rude. Anyway, welcome back. Right, let's return to my conversation with Charlie Hickson and find out what else he'd like to put in his time capsule. It is my Derek Jacobi mask. <laughs> <laughs> One of the great fun things I did with Vic and Bob was we did a remake of Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. Oh, uh, yes. And for one episode, we had the brilliant and lovely Derek Jacobi in to play the villain. And making a show like that, for me, was the chance to do all those things you've always wanted to do in a TV. I mean, you know, we grew up in the 60s where TV was much more fantastical and imaginative than it became in the 70s, where it all turned towards play for today and um, kitchen sink drama and everything had to be real and things were judged on how realistic they were. But in the 60s, we had the Avengers and Adam Adamant and the Protectors and the Prisoner, which was mm. my favourite. All these amazing, fantastical series. And Randall and Hopkirk deceased. 
And I've always loved that kind of TV. And I've always been quite angry that we don't really make any of it in this country anymore, unless it's for kids. The closest to it, probably, that has actually persevered from that era is, of course, Doctor Who. But that's, oh, that's a kid's programme. You can do fantasy in a kid's programme. Despite the fact that we've always loved those American shows, you know, like Star Trek and Star Trek, Star Trek. Um, (laughs) Well, bewitched. Yeah, I mean, you know, and through the 70s, they were making these huge, great, imaginative, fun, fantasy-based shows with talking cars and time travel, you Mm. know, Quantum Leap and all the science fiction stuff they made. But in Britain, we don't. We don't make it. Those few that we have have sort of maintained a cult following over the years, something like Sapphire and Steel. Mm. But, you know, we do lots of cop shows, nurses, doctors. But where's all the big fun fantasy stuff that will take you out of your world or make you think about your world? I mean, look at the success of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, another connection with Jeffrey, who, of course, Mm. worked on the original radio series with Douglas and uh, John Lloyd. Huge success, massive success. But still, nobody else thought, oh, maybe perhaps we could do, someone else might want to make a science fiction show or an imaginative show or something with a bit of fantasy. No, 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 no one will watch that. Let's make another thing about some nurses. (laughs) Oh, and and some doctors, yeah. And you're right, the only opportunity to make it would be is if you presented it to the children's department. My friend and I, Paul Bradley, we had a lovely idea. He he had an idea for a, a suitcase that had lots of stickers on it from around the world. A bit like Mr. Ben, I suppose. Yeah. And all you had to do was touch a sticker and off you went to this place, but at different times. So, you know, you could try and travel with it. And we took it to the adult departments and tried to sell it to them. And they went, <laughs> but that, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> no, I know it wouldn't happen. <laughs> it was quite ridiculous, their reaction to it, which was, oh, don't be silly. Yeah. But that would have been an extremely expensive show to make, though, Mike. That's why I wanted to make it. <laughs> Having to go to a, a different country each week at a different time. <laughs> but that is obviously part of the problem of doing anything sort of fantastical. But I have spent my life wanting to try and make another show and, and recreate what we had in the 60s to give people something else to watch. I mean, Americans still do it, and with the lights of Netflix, obviously now there are huge amount of these things out there, but mm. very few of them are, are, are originating in this country. So... The chance to do Randall Hopkirk, I thought, great, I can try and do something that's got fantasy, that's a bit mad. One of the characters is a ghost. Surely that gives us a certain carte blanche to have some fun. And, of course, one of the things I'd always wanted to do was a scene where someone rips their face off, exposing the true horror underneath. I mean, who doesn't love a scene where that happens? (laughs) So we had Derek Jacobi, whose character had been in this awful aeroplane accident. And at one point he he pulls his face off to reveal the real person underneath. So we ha- we did as... Have you ever had a, a face cast done I've, for yeah, prosthetics? I have, yes. What was yeah, that Yeah, in part? fact, I found it again recently. I, I thought <laughs> I'd lost it. You know that thing of where do things go? Yes. I thought I'd lost it, and it turned out to be in my son's garage. Uh, and unfortunately, while it was in the garage, its nose got broken. Was that the actual original plaster cast? It was the actual original plaster cast. Yeah, I kept it. But what was it for? Oh, for KYTV, which I did with Jeffrey Perkins. Yes. Were you disguised as someone else? I needed a fat suit. Ah. We played a, a 1960s pop band, talking about expensive shows. <laughs> there was shots of us singing this very jolly 1960s song yes. and then saying, and here they are now. And, of course, we were all <laughs> huge and yeah. old. And The great thing about that... <clears throat> Oh, that's got it. <laughs> the great thing about the Derek Jacobi mask is because it had to look like him, 
before he pulled it off to reveal a different thing underneath. Because normally a prosthetic is to make you look like someone else. Mm. And once you've had that stuck on your face and pulled off, the prosthetic is ruined. You can't use it again. But because this was a rubber thing that he pulled off, and so we had to be able to reuse it a few times. It is a perfect representation. Well, it is. It's Derek Jacobi's face with all, oh, all of it. He had a, a moustache and beard at the time, so all these hairs, as in a professionally made wig, are all sort of individually put into this rubber. So you put it on and you do look like Derek Jacobi. <laughs> We've had huge fun with it as a family over the years, <laughs> uh, particularly when the kids used to wear it when they were small. Seeing a sort of eight-year-old child with the face of Derek Jacobi with a grey beard and moustache, he's quite unsettling. Mm. And also my wife used to wear it occasionally. <laughs> you always get them to stammer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so and I've worn it for a couple of Halloweens because th- there is, and, you know, there's always something spooky about wearing any kind of mask. But wearing one which looks identical to an, to an actual real living person, and, and often people say it's a... God, God, you're wearing a mask. How reminds me of someone. Who is it? What's going on? <laughs> and you say, well, it's Derek Jacobi, of course. Do you not have a life like Derek Jacobi mask? <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, again, that mask reminds me of a fun time. We did two series of that for the BBC, but we had exactly the problems that I described, that people said, well, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit grown up for a kid's show, some quite adult things happening. And then others saying, well, it's a kid's show, isn't it? It's not for adults, it's got a ghost in it. So, you know, you, you, you couldn't win either way. But what did please me was actually that, that the, quite a lot of the talent that I got involved with on the show mm. did go on to, to, to other things because I tried to find, and it was quite hard to find other writers who could do, who wanted it to have a, you know, a strong basis in drama to keep you watching, but also people who liked fantasy and wrote fantasy and understood fantasy. Mm. So... Um, uh, you know, I got some of the League of Gentlemen guys in to, to write and perform in it. I mean, I'd known them for a few years anyway. They were friends of mine. But again, they really get that world. Yeah. And I got a couple of people who'd been working, keeping the flame of Doctor Who alive. Obviously, Russell T. Davis is the mm-hmm. one who then managed to actually get the thing back on TV. But uh, there were a couple of other writers like Gareth Roberts and Mark Gatiss. Mark Gatiss, of course, is a crossover from both, isn't he? Yes, exactly. And he'd, he'd written some of them. Murray Gold did all the music for us. And then I was, you know, I was really pleased that Russell, a, a couple of years after we'd done Random Hot Curtain, people said, well, I'm not sure it really works. He did. He managed to, to get Doctor Who back and make it a massive success because he had that great understanding and ability to write both strong drama about really good characters that you can relate to, but putting it into a, a fantastical world. And I think that was why that, that was such a such a huge success. And again, Mark Gatiss went on to work on that. Gareth Roberts went on to work on that. Uh, Murray Gold went on to work on that. All these people who who I'd felt had, had had the same sort of sensibilities as me. And I was so glad that, that Russell managed to make that happen. But of course, on the back of successor Doctor Who, did we get anything else? No. Did anyone else think, well, yeah, perhaps we could make some other shows like this? No, it's like, we got Doctor Who. That's that covered then. Yeah. How weird that is, isn't it? When you think that actually the, the fuss that's made about every new series of Doctor Who coming out and the, the expectation of the audience and also of the BBC of mm. what's going to happen, how many people are going to watch it and how excited people will be by it, you would think they would be looking for another one. Yes. Because almost in every other area, if something is a success, they will want 
another one of it. And the thing is, anybody who wants to do anything sort of bigger, more fantastical, they'll go to America or they'll go to Netflix. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Doctor Who's a really interesting one. It's a bit like James Bond in that um, because it keeps reinventing, that it, it's sort of each new incarnation represents the era that it's made in. And so, you know, it's sort of almost kind of like the fantastical version of what the BBC is. <laughs> if the BBC was a, was a science fiction show, this would be it. And Doctor Who is this sort of represents the BBC in many ways. <laughs> so when he started, he was a nice, crusty old gentleman who was a bit sort of uh, strict and mm, bossy. Rather serious. Yes. And then as the 60s went on, he became a bit more wacky and eccentric. <laughs> And then as we went to the 70s, he became quite camp with John Pertwee in his kind of <laughs> antique car. And then Tom Baker took us through to the whatever happened in the 80s. Mm. My least favourite decade uh, for everything, probably. <laughs> um, where Doctor Who went, went quite wrong. Yeah, brilliant. What a lovely thing to have as a family. Yes. A Derek Jacobi mask. I'd like to have one of those. Well, you can't have mine. <laughs> All right, we're going to put the Derek Jacobi mask into the time capsule. So that's three items we've got in Charlie. Yes, well, I, I will... I know this is audio, but I will, I will show you this one. Do. Because it's quite hard to describe. Uh, oh, as it nearly falls apart. And, of course, people can imagine this as you walk across the ballroom yeah. past the snooker table <laughs> and close the veranda door yeah. to the swimming pool area. Tell the Irish Wolf fans to stay out. <laughs> now, my wife is a graphic designer and um, a printer and a bookmaker. and She makes all sorts of things. And for my 40th birthday, she made me a fantastic... It's a sort of um, miniature museum or library, I suppose. Her brother is a carpenter and he made this beautiful wooden chest just got two big drawers in it and then a shelf for 40 books. So this is my 40th birthday and each book represents some aspect of me. And then in the drawers are items like you might find in a cabinet in a museum of sort of interest. There's half a pair of an old pair of glasses of mine. There's um, a Bic lighter, which must have been <laughs> a promotion piece for when I was in my band, the Hicksons, in the early 80s. A couple of Hickson's badges there. And what's in the other... I haven't looked in it for a while. <laughs> and this goes back to what we were talking before about the sort of past and memories and preserving things, you know, to have a sort of museum piece about your life. It's got some toy soldiers in it and a Blue Peter badge, which I got as an adult Brilliant. for my young James Bond books, that one of them was voted as the most exciting book of the year or something for Blue Peter. But the main thing is that theirs has got these 40 books... And what do they do? Do they represent a year of your life? So they're different aspects of me. So this book here, they're only like four pages long, but each one individually bound. So they're quite small. And this one is um, Charlie's favourite film, which is The Wild Bunch. So it's got some <laughs> pictures of The Wild Bunch and some information about it and the cast list. Good Lord. And um, a poster. So each one is a different aspect. So, at pot, you know, this is pot luck. Let's pull another one out. There's 40 to go through here. This might take some time. <laughs> that one is just, yes, a family photo of my father's 80th birthday with him and all his children and grandchildren. So, yeah, each one is just a different memory and a different aspect of my life. It's such a beautiful object to have. Yeah. I mean, A, it is, it is memories of, of my own life and 40 different aspects of it. And as I say, this sort of ephemera in the drawers 
but also, you know, it's a memory of my 40th birthday and it's a great thing to have as a connection to Vicky, my wife. And it demonstrates an in-depth knowledge of you. Well, I hope so. We've been together for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it was sort of bits and pieces that we had around the house. I think, you know, it was certainly when we had kids that I sort of went back and connected more with my youth and remembered things and dug out things which I had, you know, in boxes somewhere and saying, oh, look, these are my old toy soldiers and and things like that. So I think through that, she probably thought, oh, yeah, he likes that. That means something to him. But she's, you know, mm. she's, she's, she's very observant. She's very thoughtful. And she's also got a great design sense. So... Um... Is there a particular item in any of the drawers that as you open it, you think, oh, God, I'd forgotten about that? Well, there's a couple of things here. I thought, I've been looking for that. That's where it got to. <laughs> it's nice to see some toy soldiers because I loved collecting and painting toy soldiers when I was a, a kid. And I did toy with the idea of making toy soldiers one of my items. I particularly used to love the little airfix, the little tiny airfix figures where you'd get the box and you'd get those th- sort of three or four plastic uh, frames mm. with all the little soldiers attached and you'd, you'd clip them off and line them up and and if you had time you'd get around to painting them which you didn't always but I, I had so many of them they were, they were definitely my favourite toy as a kid but, and then as my kids were growing up we got into Warhammer together and started collecting and painting and actually funnily enough for Christmas my second son who's in his mid-twenties now um, he gave me a little army of Huns which I've got to put together in paint. you still got to do it? Yes, yes. Now, when I do, it's great doing something like that. I think any activity that um, is completely different to what you're doing the rest of the time, and particularly as a, as a writer, there's a danger as a writer that you just spend your time either writing or reading, and you're so immersed in the world of, of words and books and scripts, whatever. Uh, I love painting as well, just, you know, doing any kind of paintings. Um Gardening, again, is another great thing to do, but also painting toy soldiers because you're using completely different parts of your brain. You're, you're concentrating on something outside of the inside of your own head. You're getting out of your mind palace and <laughs> doing some gardening in your mind garden. Um, there have been times when I've been so busy doing writing that I've neglected to do other things, and you do start to go a bit weird. You can't sleep as you've got plots and things going around in your head. And, yeah, you, you get stressed in a way that you don't really under, appreciate just because you're not getting any escape from being inside your head. Yeah, those sort of things. I'm not sure I particularly have them. I have them with people, so I'm perfectly happy to drop everything in order to play with my grandchildren. Well, that's perfect, yes. So I, I look forward to things like Warhammer. Yes. <laughs> At the moment, it's Skylanders. Right. Yeah, you've got to make yourself disconnect from that and playing with your grandchildren is a perfect way to do that i would say mike it certainly is at the moment all i can do is is i can buy the figures <laughs> i've gone from the man who provides sweets <laughs> to the man who if they go through my pockets they find a skylander right. figure are they those things you, i know you can get them where the toy kind of interacts with the what's happening online and the yes. pictures yeah you put them on a pad and then they appear on the screen yeah when i saw it i went wow yeah i want to play with that <laughs> it's magic it's, it's magic <laughs> It's almost like somebody turning into Derek Jacobi all of a sudden in front of me. (laughs) All right, Charlie, we've got one final thing to put into the time capsule. Yes. Now, as I said when we started, this is something that is very precious to me, but Mm. also something that causes me great pain. And I would be very happy to put it in this time capsule. It is 
I'm so intrigued. You're only going to be disappointed. <laughs> oh, is that it? Uh, it's this highlighter pen. No, um, <laughs> it is all the letters that have been sent to me by children who have enjoyed my books. Now, when I started out as a children's author, which I, I came to fairly late in life, I was in my 40s. And you sort of think, well, we've done the far show. That's, that was a big success. I probably won't do anything else in TV that's as successful in, in that way as that was because it was a certain time of my life and the stars aligned. But, you know, I thought, well, I'll carry on making some, some TV and hopefully something else will, will, will be popular. Um, but I was approached by someone from the Ian Fleming estate in fact, she had been my my editor. I wrote uh, four books for crime books for adults in the early nineties before TV took over, and she was working for the Fleming Estate. And she said, "We've got this new project. Would you be at all interested in writing a book about the young James Bond?" Now, she knew my writing style was. I, I've always been a huge fan of the sort of American hard boiled writing, which is very direct and stripped back. There's not all flowery language and long descriptions. It's kind of there you are. Um, she thought that style would work well for kids. She knew I had boys of my own, which were, and the eldest was about the right age for the books they were looking at. And she knew I was a huge James Bond fan. And the offer to write an actual James Bond book about the actual James Bond, officially commissioned by the Ian Fleming estate, that was like a sort of dream job for me. And I had been looking to write something for my boys along those lines, thinking, you know, because the far show was in the past, it meant nothing to them, but... I thought, well, if I could write some books that they would enjoy reading and maybe their friends would enjoy reading and so they could kind of be connected with what I'm doing. So I said, yeah, God, this would be brilliant. And I went on to write five, I think, five or six. I should know, shouldn't I? Let's say I went on to write five of them. Uh, and it was it was huge fun and it was and it was great to, to, to actually be given a, a new job at that relatively late point in life and actually to get a whole load of new fans. Mm. young fans who didn't know my TV work and, and so didn't need to put it together with that. As far as they were concerned, I was Charlie Higson who wrote the Young James Bond books. And, and that was brilliant fun to do. And it was, it was brilliant fun to write, to write for kids, um, particularly for boys. I mean, the books were, were pretty popular with girls too, still are. But one of my big things was to write books that boys would enjoy reading because there was a big debate at the time which has gone on and has probably even tougher now of how do you get boys to read books so it was really gratifying to write books that that boys did enjoy reading and and you know I would get letters from teachers from parents from school librarians and from kids saying you know I didn't like reading before I didn't think it was for me but you know I read one of your books or someone suggested this book or I suggested this book to this boy and now they, they love reading and they're reading all sorts of things. Fantastic. So the idea that you could be, to get someone into reading and be the first sort of full-length chapter book, as, as, as my kids called them, that they might read, you know, and hopefully remember was a great honour and it was huge fun to do. So I loved writing for kids and I went on to write another series for slightly older kids, the, the Enemy series. So when I started, I started getting letters from kids and I would try and write back. You know, sometimes it would be a few weeks before I got round to it. I've never been good at writing letters. It always used to be hideous. <laughs> at, when we were kids, you'd get presents from aunties and things. And always on Boxing Day, my dad sent us up to our rooms to write our thank you letters. And I was probably there for an hour at most. 
but it felt like the biggest torture. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it just said, I can't do this. And I think, what am I going to write in this letter? Thank you for the socks. It was the best thing I got for Christmas. <laughs> so I'm not very good at writing. So when it started, I would, I would start replying. But then I got more and more and more letters coming in. And, you know, you look at the writer's life, particularly children's writers, and offer them, you know, it'd be like a day in the life of an author. They'll say, well, I spend the morning doing my correspondence. I write back to fans who've written to me or people asking me questions about my books. I'm thinking, well, you spend a whole morning doing that every day. God. <laughs> and so these piles of letters would pile up. And, you know, I, I would get really moving letters from people saying, this has really helped me in a difficult time of my life. Reading your books has, 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 has been great for me. Or, as I say, a lot of them about, and now I'm really in, into reading. Mm. Um, and a lot of them, a, a lot of kids in schools, they do this thing about, they, as part of teaching them how to connect with the world and write letters, they get them all to write to their favourite author. Bastards. Well, exactly. You get hundreds of the bloody things and they all ask the same sort of questions that they've been... You should ask them this, this, this and this. And so they all tend to ask ah. the same thing. So I then started compiling a sort of database of all the questions that people asked me and all the answers to that. And for a while I had an assistant who was very good at... Um, she would go through with me and, and she would deal with the letters and I'd sign them and then she moved on to something else and and basically i just got boxes and boxes of these these letters and and it's just like huge boxes of guilt that i've not <laughs> replied to these kids and i look at some of them now and think my god this kid's probably in their 20s i i think it'd be too late to reply to that one oh do you not think it might be quite exciting to get the letter back well often yeah but they're often they're through a teacher from their primary school or something you know and you can't uh, um yeah. Sometimes they're sent to my agent. She sends one. I said, oh, I've had this lovely letter. I found it very touching. And, it, and I get it. I think, yeah, I'll put that on the pile there. That's my pile of letters to reply to. Oh. And then six months later, ah, oh, oh, they were in the year six. They're probably not at the primary school anymore. But anyway, I feel absolutely terrible that I've not replied to these letters. You also get a lot of authors who say, I wrote to Roald Dahl when I was... 10, and he wrote back the most <laughs> lovely letter and it really encouraged me. And that's uh, what made me go on to become an author. You think there's these marvellous <laughs> authors who've, who've spread such joy in the world because they got an encouraging letter back. And bloody Charlie Higson can't be bothered to respond. The world's going to be bereft. Yes. There'll not be a book written. I know. I would have written it, but, you know, <laughs> I just can't yeah. be asked now. I don't want to grow up to be a git like him. You know, and they do lovely drawings and paintings and pictures and stuff they send to you. And uh, so, I, you know, if any child who's now sitting there at home with their, with their grandchildren like you, who wrote to me as a child, and I never wrote back, I would really, really like to apologise for not writing back. And I, and I wish I had written back to every single letter. But uh, I, so I have this box of guilt, which I say, well, let's put it in the time capsule so their letters and their thoughts are at least preserved for somebody else to look at. I might put it in there with an assistant. <laughs> and you should be ashamed because, let's face it, you've played James Bond. I have. You? Yes, that was a funny one. Uh, um, <laughs> and I did, yes, and I, I, I took a photo of my uh, three-way. Mm. If you're a top actor on set, you get the, your Winnie Bago on location. If you're sort of next tier down, you'll get a two-way, I think, which is like two quite large rooms... And then at the further down, you get to a sort of three-way, six-way, ten-way, tent, bus. 
uh, it's your little tiny little changing and hanging out area. So on the door of mine, because it puts the name of the character, not the actor, so that the costume people can think, oh, I've got James Bond's costume. Where do I put that? Oh, the one that says James Bond, which was my little room, which was fun, actually. It was one of the reboots of Miss Marple. Uh, the producers got in touch with me and said, look, we're doing um, a Miss Marple. We want to do a Caribbean mystery. It's the only time that Miss Marple leaves England. In order to recuperate from her rheumatism, I think, she's, her nephew sends her to this beautiful idyllic hotel in the Caribbean. But as Miss Marple says to someone there, even in the Garden of Eden there was a serpent... And so, of course, people start getting bumped off in this Caribbean hotel. And you thought, shall I do this job? Yeah. So what they said to me was, look, what we're trying to do in these these new versions, we're trying to sort of set each one in a sort of reasonably specific timescale. This is set in the 50s. And they said, if possible, we're trying to sort of bring in a little cameo from a real person at the time. So somebody who might have been around in the 50s. And they said, this is set in the Caribbean in the 50s. Ian Fleming had a house out there, Goldeneye, that he built as his uh, little holiday getaway. And that's where he wrote all his James Bond books. Every single one was written in about three weeks in Goldeneye in, on Jamaica. And they said, we would really think it would be fun if Miss Marple, this great detective, could bump into Ian Fleming. And then they said, and when we thought of that, we, we thought of you. As someone who knows about Ian Fleming, as a James Bond writer who knows about writing TV and thrillers and things, uh, would you be interested? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, what a great, another great British institution. That's our TV, Agatha Christie's. So I thought, fabulous. Yes, I will. And as I started writing it, I thought, OK, we're, they're at a hotel and involved in some of the action going on. And I thought, well, you know what? If we've got Ian Fleming in there, wouldn't it be fun to put James Bond in there as well? <laughs> now, funny enough, just as an aside, Agatha Christie did write a story in the 20s in which the main character is called James Bond. Really? Because there's always this debate about where the name James Bond come from. Mm. I went with the, 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 the accepted version because James Bond was a real American ornithologist who wrote a book about birds of the West Indies. And Ian Fleming said... I had a copy of this on my shelf. He was he was really into nature and bird watching and and uh, snorkeling and verbing the fish and the local wildlife. He loved all that. Um, and he said, "I was I was trying racking my brains trying to think of a name for this character. I wanted something blunt and direct and unfussy. I didn't want him to be a Lord Peter Whimsy. James Bond is a is a he's a fist. He's a blunt object. And I looked up and there was this book by James Bond. And I thought." That's the perfect name. So I thought, okay, I'm going to put the actual, the original James Bond, the ornithologist, into my Miss Marple and the Ian Fleming. Brilliant. So I went back to them and said, how about James Bond and Ian Fleming? They said, marvellous, great. <laughs> so I have it that, that, that the ornithologist, James Bond, comes to give a talk at the hotel where Miss Marple's staying about birds of the West Indies. Ian Fleming is there. He has this conversation with Miss Marple, but I'm writing this book. I'm trying to think of a name for my character. And then the ornithologist comes on and says, hello, um, my name's Bond, um, James Bond. Uh, <laughs> and I'd like to talk to you about birds of the West Indies. It was quite meta, as they say, that Charlie Higson, the writer of James Bond, has written James Bond into this thing. And of course, off they went to start filming. And as I was saying before, most of the stuff I've written for TV, I've ended up producing and I've had control over. And 
One of the things that does, it means it is you are involved with the day-to-day grinding stress of making a television programme. All the things that should be going right but aren't and can go wrong do. And you're fighting against time and budget mm. and people not turning up or forgetting their lines. And, it, and it, it's stressful. I mean, it's, it's incredibly it's rewarding at the same time. There's Orson Welles saying, you know, this is the, the greatest train set a boy can be given. It is, but, mm. you know... When your trains keep crashing and coming off the lines, it's it, so um, you can edit this down to a good thirty-second anecdote, I'm sure. <laughs> but, so I wrote this for them, and they said, oh, "We can't make it this series. We haven't got the budget to actually go and film in the West Indies." That went on for about three series, and I think they changed the, the actress playing Miss Marple. Eventually, they came to the very last series of Miss Marple, uh, and they said, "Look, we've done every other story with Miss Marple." The only one we haven't done is Caribbean Mystery, so we've got to do it. But then they said, we can't film it in the Caribbean because there isn't really a, the infrastructure out there. We're going to film it in South Africa. Everybody these days films in South Africa. So they're off filming. And because this was, you know, this is the great Agatha Christie machine. I'm just the writer. I don't need to worry about anything else. I thought, oh, this is brilliant. Great. I don't have to worry about it. And then you start hearing back from the location. Well, you know, everybody says it hasn't rained here for the last 10 years, but it's been raining every day. We used up our our bad (laughs) weather cover in the first week. Uh, We're trying to film all these scenes in the pouring rain. It's an absolute bloody nightmare. And I'm sitting I'm thinking, fair enough. It's your problem, mate. It's not mine. (laughs) You'll work out a way around it. But then they got in touch with me and said, look, we thought it might be quite fun if you played James Bond. And I thought, actually, you know, it would be quite fun to, to complete the meta circle <laughs> so i did i went out there and i got to say uh yes hello my name's bond uh, james bond uh Brilliant. as as james bond the ornithologist but of course it meant that for two days i was thrown into the maelstrom of filming and just how bloody stressful it's particularly a night shoot you're up all night <laughs> going a bit mad anyway <laughs> the first day i got there they were filming the Two scenes. One of them was this big dinner party that opens the scene where all the guests at the hotel are sitting around this big table outside on the veranda in this beautiful moonlit evening with candles in the trees and a steel band playing on the lawns. But it was pissing with rain. <laughs> Absolutely chucking. And they built this makeshift roof over all the actors. The rain was thundering down onto, which they would occasionally have to poke with a stick to try and get these buckets of water off it and then at one point one of the crew shouted out quick run get them out of there it's about to collapse <laughs> and they went to grab miss marple and anthony Cher, who was playing the other main character and pulled them out of the way just before this whole roof collapsed <laughs> and it was absolute bloody madness I was thinking, oh god i was really just didn't have to go through any of this stress i'd been at home just happily waiting to see the rushes um, but no, it was it, it was it was fun to be part of it, and and as I say, to have on my dressing room door, James Bond. Brilliant. <laughs> well, there we are. Um, okay, so we've um, we put all the things into the time capsule. That's it, Charlie. Yes. I shall seal it up and put it somewhere safe. It'd be like the Blue Peter time capsule. We'd be dug up in about three weeks' time. <laughs> Today we're going to be looking about the time capsule of how things were three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can dig it up any time you like. <laughs> well, it's been great to talk to you, Mike, and catch up on the old days. Yeah, lovely to see you. And you, and you. 
You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Charlie Hickson. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, there are plenty of other episodes available. You just subscribe on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider, where you can rate us and maybe leave a small review. Thanks. You can follow me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and you can listen to our theme tune by Pass the Peas Music in full on Spotify, along with all previous episodes. This podcast was a cast-off production, and the producer was John Fenton-Stevens. We'll be back with another episode soon, but in the meantime, the name's Fenton-Stevens. Mike Fenton-Stevens. Double O, my God. License to pod. Oh, no, that sounds disgusting. Sorry. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.